Hello and welcome to the Recovery Matters Podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. You know what I'm thinking about right now? That you want to strangle me? Is how the heck have I made it almost 29 years being married to you? That's what I'm thinking at the moment. Because I am a... Annoying. Funny. Frustrating. Loving. Frustrating. Kind. And annoying. Pot stirrer. I don't like that phrase, pot stirrer. Why? It makes me think of pot stickers, and it just reminds me that I'm pretty hungry right now. Pot stick, pot stirrer reminds you of pot stickers. If I think of a pot stirrer, it's like, it's really just like a chef stirring the pot. But I also think it could be marijuana. There you go. Every, every time cannabis comes up, and it hasn't even come By secret desire to be a bud tender. Yeah. But I don't think I want to actually use any. You just want to garden with marijuana. No, I want to work in the store. Oh, in the store. Be a butt tender. And you can say, I want some marijuana that makes me feel this way. And I go, hey. We were bartenders <laughs> together in recovery. That's true. Yeah. But I don't really care about our story anymore. I want to hear about our guest story today. Well, I think you like, already you like one. I do. Well, he's got a really nice sweater on. <laughs> and you need a like my orchid shirt. I do like the orca t-shirt. I just like a well-dressed man. Okay. Is that inappropriate? Um, everybody's crazy about a well-dressed man. Do you know what that's from? No. ZZ Top? I definitely didn't. Oh, my gosh. How have we been, how have we been married? For I think R&B. If you don't even know ZZ Top. Well-dressed man. Sharp-dressed man, actually. Everybody's crazy. Because they have unkempt man. facial hair. I won. You guys are so hilarious. I love it. So you're on the Recovery Matters podcast. Are you nervous? I'm excited. Okay. I'm excited. I'm so excited. So here's an opening question. Yes. What matters about recovery that you'd like to discuss? What well, matters about um, recovery that I like there to discuss? Gun. What matters about recovery? <laughs> I've seen that. <laughs> um, I think the matters that I like to attack are culture competence and then just you know uh what i love about c car is um i'm able to recognize i was re- able to recognize my own biases towards helping others and um and just really being able to be open-minded and, and, and willing to help others with different beliefs different standards and just making a complete 180 to my mind frame and my thoughts about all right you know, i gotta follow up what wasn't before and what was what's it like now why do you say like cultural competence i, I think are you talking about pathways well yes pathways absolutely um i think it was more for me um going through my incarceration i was they were forcing like a 12-step program onto me mm-hmm. and i i enjoyed it mm-hmm. but there were certain certain things that that I wanted to kind of tweak my way, like, hey, you know, um, maybe I don't have to do this step right now, but you know, I can get back to it later. Yeah, I think that's so. That's and, and not only that, but my my religion also. 
I grew up in a, in a church, Christian, um, Pentecostal. My mother, you know, implicated so many good things and morals into our home. She was always working hard, single mom. My dad was um, affected by drug disorder, and uh, it was heroin. Early in my childhood, I, I recognized my dad wasn't normal. Dad was using heroin, and as a as a kid, I didn't know what, what, that he was abu abusing um, heroin and, and alcohol as well. My mom always said, hey, don't be like him, but I didn't know what that meant because I was too young to understand addiction. Was this here? In Hartford, Connecticut. I was born in Hartford, Connecticut. I was raised in Hartford, Connecticut, right here on, on Park Street area. It's just an inf infested neighborhood to this day. It's very infested with, with, with fentanyl now, but you know, at the time it was heroin. And growing up, all I witnessed was people selling transactions. Looking out my window as a child was people just, just doing violent things, doing crime, committing crimes. So that became my norm. At 12 years old, I began to use ecstasy pills. I got caught on alcohol very early in my life. Seeing that the influences around me, it was just it was just the norm around my area, and um, I began to sell drugs. Mm. That was one of my instant gratification to get things was selling drugs. No one ever taught me, hey, go get a job. This is how you create income. It was just everyone around me was selling drugs and drinking and abusing alcohol and drugs. And um, and for me, that led to detention centers, a lot of programs, and then. I was incarcerated for selling drugs at 13 years old, came out when I was 14, 10 months later, and um, that's all I knew after that. Now I'm in the Middletown um, Juvenile Facility, Long Lane, and I did 10 months there, came out, went back to the same things. I never really had a father figure. Um, my mom was always working. I never had guidance. I never had no one you know, to support me. Well, was your, what, did your dad stay with the family? or? So my dad stayed with us periodically, and then he would be kicked out of the home. You know, I didn't know why my mom was kicking him out, but he was getting kicked out of the home for his substance abuse. And um, I didn't really know why, you know, they were, they were beefing, having that, those arguments, and, and I never understood. I always thought mom was bad or the mean one because, hey, why dad's always getting kicked out? Dad was loving to me. He, he was a you know, like always emotionally showing me that he cared about me, but he was just caught up in the streets. Do you have siblings? I have an older brother, yes. And he's never, thank God, he's never really been been involved with the lifestyle. Is your dad still alive? Yes, yes, yes. So dad did 20 years clean, and then he just recently relapsed. Oh, 20 years, 20 years clean. And, um... And so, so you know, growing, you know, back to growing up, and and I caught a ten-year sentence at seventeen years old. So how? What year was that? And that was two thousand and six. And young. Yeah, I'm thirty-three. And half of my life was, you know, half of my life I spent incarcerated. Yeah. And um, coming home in two thousand and um sixteen, the end of two thousand and sixteen, I wanted to change. That's where I really wanted to change, and um. I did another year and I'm home and I be, fell back into my addiction. And my addiction is more of the lifestyle. It was never really, yes, drugs, absolutely. But my addiction was more of that instant gratification. Uh, I, I was addicted to money. Yeah. You know, I was addicted to power. Um, what do you was, think the difference was that your brother didn't get caught up on it? You know, usually a lot of times we hear 
as the younger siblings seeing it happening with the older siblings and they kind of follow suit but well um i believe my brother was sick a lot because of his uh he had seizures when we were, when we were kids and he was in the hospital a lot yeah and and he was more humble than i was he wasn't sneaking out of, you know of the church like i was when i was younger <laughs> he had a different set of friends i believe I, I think that was probably the the biggest reason yeah just the inf his influences were different he loved sports i could care less about anything but but the street life and um and just i don't know i wanted a reputation and, and to people who didn't matter so if heard a lot in the news media about long lane what was that experience like for you long lane was was um you know it's supposed to be a therapeutic center ran by dcf but in reality it's just a it's just a little war zone for ju for juveniles there's a few people that cared and and really came in to counsel us and and give us advice and teach us but in reality, the the classrooms were, you know, forty kids per classroom, and there wasn't enough attention to give and love to give to all those kids, and those classes are too big. Yeah. And um, not saying that some people were trying because the teachers were trying. It's just, it's just you know, we're we're out. The evil was outnumbering the good, overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so um. So coming out of prison, you know, no, going through prison, um, I was still trying to drink. I was still trying to smuggle in drugs through my fiance. Can we back up one second though? So seventeen, you went, you got a ten-year bit. Consensus is correct. Did you serve all ten? Yes. Wow. Yes. Oh. Yes, it was a uh, um. So how do you summarize ten years in prison? If you had to summarize well, it. <laughs> <laughs> wow! And so yeah, I, all I remember is is like getting sentenced, and and you know, you know, a year and a half into fighting my cases, and um, and all I remember is going back to my cell in my bunk, and I'm 18 years old, and and I couldn't wait my whole life to be 18, right? And now here I'm 18, and and I wake and I go back to my cell after court, and I go to my bunk, and and I just said, what am I gonna do for eight more years? Eight and a half or were they were they mostly drug related charge? Yes, gu guns and drugs were involved in my case, and I was. Do you think it was a fair sentence? Yes, looking back, I, looking back it, it it was a fair sentence. I I accepted a, you know responsibilities in the role I played in selling drugs and in carrying firearms. I accepted the role, you know, and even if that particular moment. I didn't deserve the 10 for that case because there's good lawyers that probably would have beat the charges. But I've done so much stuff in my life that... <laughs> that you didn't that up. Right. So that's how I look at it. You know what? Okay. And, and prison was the best education I ever got. You know, I don't have a bachelor's. I don't have a... You know, there's the things I'm pursuing that's part of my goal to so go get an associate's, get mm -hmm. a DART program, yeah. MCC, and things like that. But I always tell people prison was the best education I had, you know, because I separated myself on my second bid. After I did the 10, I was still involved in the in the wrong things. But when I served the three and a half afterward, so um, getting caught for more drug charges, that's where I began to change. And that's where I'm, I guess you would say my aha moment came. And um, 
I caught myself drinking and 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 using drugs in prison again, and um, having my ex fiance come bring me smuggle me drugs. And I guess I would, I guess there, I got caught inside of the prison with with um heroin, and that's where I ended up in solitary confinement for twenty two days, and they starved us in there. Twenty two days. Twenty two days. After so, and then you would you would get your lunch or your dinner around two thirty three o'clock, and after that you're not eating anymore. I would try to smuggle my orange. I was try to smuggle some bread, and and try and hoard a little bit of food. And the seals would come in there and they take the little bit of food you got left. And um, and it was a very dark moment in my life. That's probably the darkest moment in my life. And um, I had no re no phone. No counseling, no, no nothing. It's just you in the solitary confinement, and um, and and that's where I I got to, you know, the only person I could reach out to was my higher power, okay. and um, that's where I said, you know what, God, I'm done, you know, changing my heart, changing my soul, just change everything, and I promise I'll try my best, and um, and He answered after 21 days when I said my when I got on my knees and I broke. As soon as I said that prayer, my door opens. No, it didn't. Juan, you're going to population. And I think God, my God, my higher power was just telling me, hey, just break. Yeah. You know, just give in. Stop stop being this tough guy you're not. Stop doing the things you're doing. And, and yeah. And it's my, you know, I don't regret going to prison. I don't. It gave me a different type of willpower. It gave me skills that I can't learn. In any school, it's the college, it's the education you can't pur purchase in, in Yale or UConn, and, and and it gave me the grit that I had. What was um mom's role with all this? What was she thinking, watching her mom baby boy doing all this? So mom was one of my few supports left. Everyone left me about five years into my incarceration. Everyone stopped believing in me, my family, my friends. Um, it's probably my mom and my brother that the only ones are still writing me. I have one friend still say, hey, keep your head up and things like that. But um, yeah, everyone pretty much gave up on me, except, you know, my higher power and, and, and my, mo my mom, she was just, she was encouraging. She was, she was writing letters, sending a little bit of money on the holidays so I could get some soups. And, and you know, it was just a lot of hunger in there. That's all I remember is just always being hungry. Um, commissary was, you know, everyone getting their commissary, but I really never had much in there. Um, you know, even TVs are expensive. They're like too good to pay extra for soup. Yes. So the little ramen noodle soups are about like 60 cents, 50 cents. And they're out here, they're like 10 cents. So everything's taxed. Um, I, I have a passion for going, you know, for even medical attention is so hard to get while you're incarcerated. And I have a passion for doing something about it this time. You know the right way, and um, yeah. I was so what if you have to pay for a little cup of ramen soup? What are they feeding you? Oh, just mashed potatoes and and little like green, real little real mashed potatoes. No, it's that stuff you just put water on. <laughs> it's, everything's instant. Everything, uh, yeah, everything's just a big guy. He'd probably like to eat. 
Don't do a lot of burp, jump burpees and push-ups from there, you know. But if you're doing all that, too, you need fuel. Right, that. right. That, you must have been always a lot of water. Just a lot, always. Always. It was like you can never really get it. So when you first get the first day you got out, where'd you go? First day I got out? Yeah, where'd you go? You know, you must have gotten to eat something. The mom cooked? Yeah, uh, uh, she did. He did. I ate pork shoulder. Oh. Roast, roasted pork is my favorite. To this day, is one of my few addictions I got love. It's just the, I love that pork shoulder in my own heart. Yeah. Yep. yep. I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to work. I knew I wanted to get a job, start building my credit, build, build my life. I'm third. I was 31 at the time with nothing. Um, I went to my ex-fiancé's. Um, I, I was living with my ex-fiancé, and I had to sleep in my car because she was back to drugging and drinking. And I knew that I wanted to remove myself, and the most difficult thing coming out of prison was removing myself from my lo some loved ones that were weren't doing the right thing. And I literally sacrificed my family, her daughter, you know, had to leave everyone in order to save myself. So you got out of prison and you slept in your car. I slept in my car. So front seat or back seat? In the front. <laughs> and you just tilted back. And I tilted back. Like pillows, blankets. Yes, yes, I did. I'm just curious. I know, but I never knew it, dear. Because I'm like a camper and a survivalist, and I just like to think about how people make it work. And my mom's place was still open for me, but I just... You said no? Yeah, I just... Pride or... Pride. Yeah. She asked questions like, well, you're okay, everything's okay, everything's okay, mom. I'm just applying for work, going to C-Card mm -hmm. um, as a volunteer, and then, yeah, um, she knew something was wrong. She just, you know, we kept praying. She kept praying for me, and um, I I kept applying. I couldn't find I couldn't find work. I couldn't find work because my felonies. I couldn't find work anywhere, and um, it was very difficult to find employment because of my drug history and my and my and my own felonies. So I mentioned to you that I'm in Wait. graduate school, school of social work at UConn, and so a lot of my fellow students are really passionate about um incarceration and all the abuses and things and so it's really I've heard a lot about how there's really no transition for folks like you're and just you're released and completely on your own with nothing and that is true I mean you know we got good people of this world and that that will help you with their personal stuff but everyone has their own life also and, and and for someone to really dedicate time and, and passion into you, you don't see it at almost anywhere. And it was like, hey, Juan, you know, um, f you know, figure it out. I maxed out a sentence, so I didn't have probation or parole. I had no, no, no structure. I would say. Yeah. And um. And you're 31 when you finished your last. And when, bid. You're, in, and when you're and you went in at seventeen for your first for my first bid, yeah, beneficial system. And when you were let out the last time, what time of day was it? It was around morning, nine a.m. And where did they bring you? They bring they bring you. you they brought me from Uncasville, the prison court, way up there. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, because uh, you know something I skipped in my story is I renounced from my affiliation. Uh -huh. of of my gang yeah. while I was incarcerated. I had to go to chow hall and renounce from people that I sat at the table at and I was affiliated with. And for me to, you know, 
My life is in jeopardy every time I want to go eat chow. Sometimes I didn't want to eat chow because I didn't want to deal with those people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I went through a lot of backlash for it. Oh, you're supposed to put 20 years before you drop out of our gang and things like that. And, you know, so I, I was afraid, but I also built up the courage to change. And how old were you when you went, um, when you joined the gang? I was 21. I joined them in prison just for survival. I didn't want to be a part of it. Yeah. Right, it's just you either this or this, pick a side or, or get kicked out. So between Long Lane and then your adult incarceration, you've pretty much grown up incarcerated. Absolutely, in the prison system. So how do you catch up in this crazy world of ours once mm-hmm. your release? He finished my question. <laughs> I just wanted to ask him, he got brought from Uncasville too to Hartford County and then they just leave you in tans they say kick you out the front door tans yeah in tans I think they do sweats now where all right right there right where I work at now where 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 uh restaurant depot is yeah down the street it's a county jail on Jennings Road oh yeah and they drop you off they drop you off and they drive away give you a phone call yeah, you get one phone call from from the inside. from inside. Yeah, and then you contact your your ride, and hopefully you've had. But it's just gonna say that. Hopefully you have one and get off our premises. Okay, you know there's a gas station there. You, I don't know. You can go over the bridge and enter the city. They give you like this paper ID, so you can get like one free bus ride, or a couple free bus rides is in the paper IDs. And then so you can go get identification also. You can use it as a form of identification. It's just your mugshot with your government, your social. And you don't even have any idea on you of any. No, I, nope. Just a bag, some mail, some personal photos. And just drop you off yeah. and say, good luck. Good luck. Figure it out. And if you have a probation, and if you have a probation or parole officer. You got to go there. You got to go there first. And figure out how to get there. And figure out how to get there. Yeah, that's an amazingly poor picture. <laughs> but anyway, I'm sorry, honey. Go ahead. What was your question? Well, just that you you grew up and incarcerated, basically. You grew up all those formative years of learning how to be an adult and be independent. And now here you are, dropped off and figuring it out. And it's only, is it three years later right now? Right. Um. So I got out in 2019 and September, about... September, uh, I went a month without work. October 31st, I got hired at Restaurant Depot. And then, like I said, I struggled with finding employment. This is every day looking for an employer. Oh, yeah. I was hungry for to change. I was motivated. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't find employment. With the Vavilines, they shut me down. I went to the hotels, they shut me down. Everywhere, anywhere, all across Hartford County. Um, transportation wasn't... My mom gave me like two grand for a car that I ended up sleeping in for a little bit, and um, that's all I had. Had nothing in my pocket. I got hot, and I kept going to Restaurant Depot because it was close to home, and I heard they were felon friendly, so I just kept showing up. They didn't have no room for anyone. I kept showing up, kept showing up. They're like, "Hey, we fool, come back," you know, after Thanksgiving. I was like, "I can't wait till Thanksgiving. Please, just give me a shot." And, and then I met this gentleman. Um, Andrew, hire a manager, um, branch manager, and he gave me an opportunity. 
right before he left, restaurant people, he said, you know what? I was his last hire. I don't know if he knows that, but I was his last hire. And um, he ended up going to Walmart or wherever he went to. And um, they, yeah, I got two promotions. I earned two promotions there. Just like I said, I'm not the smartest person in the room. I always say I'm not the smartest person in the room, but it's very few people that I will outwork with. I'm going to outwork everyone in this room. And that's how I make up for that, you know, that IQ. You know, I, I know how to, my EQs, I got a high EQ, so I know how to manage my emotions today. Yeah. I'm strong with managing my emotions. I, You know, Juan before used to get upset and react. Now I can slow it, slow it down. So with my managing my emotions became a better pathway of my recovery for me than having an IQ. My EQs was what's most important for me. How do you know you don't have a that? Why do you say you're not the smartest person? Well, cause you know that. Well, cause you know, speaking on a corporate level, I'm with meetings with guys that have you know bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, sort of say, and then I'm in meetings. So somebody with a degree is smarter than you. Uh, uh, is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's the stigma that America, you're saying. America. I'll just speak from my own perspective of being in grad school. I am not smarter than you, Juan. I can assure you of that. I find it, you know, the contrast between how you made money on the streets and now you're working this routine schedule. You kind of know what to expect. I mean, just the intelligence to navigate the streets and navigate prison is probably worth more than a PhD. So give yourself credit. Well, it's it's like uh, emotional intelligence is um, divided into two areas, how well you know yourself Correct. and how socially aware you are too. So... Um, I would say you're probably really socially aware. You had to be. That's what you learned. I, absolutely, and um, and, and and that's where I pride myself in, and and I'm humble about it. But like you know, I just know that I know what I'm capable of. I um, I used to make a lot of excuses why I can't do anything. My addictive thinking used to be like, "Why well, I can't do that?" My addictive thinking made me um apply for meet Packer, but in reality, I took culinary arts courses courses in prison, and I should have been applying for a meat manager, but my limited belief led me to think, let me just get a job, you know what I mean? And, um, yeah, then I have the conf confidence. My self-esteem was very low coming out of prison, um, but when I look at it from now, I'm like, hey, when I, when I, you know, when I started working at a restaurant depot and I became the meat manager, I'm like, so much better than what I thought I was. Yeah. You know, I, I know the cuts of beef. I know I know the business because of what I used to do in the street. And that translated to Restaurant Depot, and it just, I was so far ahead of, you know. Why do you say your self-esteem was low? Um, I just doubted myself a lot. I didn't know if I was capable of getting even a job. You know, just everyone turning me down. Um, well, that sounds, I don't know if that has to do with your self-esteem. It has to do with the system you were dealing with, right? Because you knew, and this goes to your intelligence, that it would be very difficult for you to get a job. Correct. You knew that. I did. And so it was more probably 
fear and doubt and anxiety or uncertainty of the future than than uh, self-esteem. Yes. Yeah, you're right. Because I am a little confident, confident person. But you can be confident and humble and humble. God, yes, you yeah. can be. Yeah. Do you think, I think that are. anything from when you picked up? Could anything have happened in your middle school and high school years that could have changed that? That's a great question, Sandy, because in middle school, I was getting good grades. I was, like, in a high honor class. Oh, wait, you were smart? <laughs> I was. I was getting... Some, something was a change because when I was... I was, playing, <laughs> I was playing two sides. You know, I, I love the streets, yeah. and I stayed... Right after school, I do my homework in school on my downtime just so I could go play in the streets. Mm -hmm. And in middle school, I think that was the turning point where I started to get in trouble that, and and like really hang with the wrong friends. I'll just stay outside. And I think if I had a um like a sport or something to have fun, because I just, I was a kid, I just want to have fun. Yeah. And. My fun was getting in trouble, but I wasn't trying to hurt anyone. It was just what people were doing around me. So if we had like a basketball center or somewhere we could go have fun, because Hartford for the city that we are, I love Hartford, but there's really nothing. There's no bowling alley. You got to go to East Hartford. For the for it's it's really nothing to do mm -hmm. if you don't have money. Yeah. You know, got money, you can do whatever. But we were poor, so. Where were where where was the safe haven for for uh, um us as children to go? There wasn't any safe havens for us to go. I mean, there's a basketball church, um, that we ended up finding, but by then it was a little later. We were already teenagers and already picking up our our you know our crime and our felonies and things like yeah. that. And everyone around me has cases, and they're doing a lot of time in prison or they're dead. There's probably one or two that that's really doing the, the right thing, and um, and um, yeah, um, coming now, you know, I'm I'm just so grateful for C Car. It, it brought me to see, you know, prison brought me to C Car. C Car has connected me closer to my higher power. Recovery's brought me back to my higher power. I always knew who my higher power was, but recovery's brought me back to my higher power, and um. And I tried the 12 steps while I was in prison. I completed them. I still have, you know, I, lo I loved what I learned from it. But it felt like everyone was shoving it to me. Like, hey, this is what you do. It was like shoved in my face. Yeah. So what's your recovery look like now? How do you take care of it? So discipline is real important for me. Uh, discipline is the foundation of my recovery. When I wake up every morning, I have to get on my knees and I have to say a prayer to my higher power which is god my higher power is god jesus christ and i have to get down and i have to give him my will because when i take my will i'm gonna screw it up <laughs> i'm gonna find a way to screw it up it's just what happens so now i have to my recovery is based on giving it to my higher power in the morning doing my zoom meetings um what do you mean your Zoom meetings? I do some Zoom meetings through C-Car. Recovery meetings? Yes. Yes, gotcha. I do my recovery meetings. Um, Every once in a while, I'll visit another meeting. Mm -hmm. If I have time, I do 60 hours as a restaurant depot meet manager. And then 60? 60. And I've been volunteering at Hartford Center for, for a few years now, a couple years now. 
on Mondays and Fridays. And then I have a newborn baby and she's she's five months. So that's part of my recovery is just staying busy and staying focused and being kind. Part but what's big in my recovery is being kind. Cause I used to always be mean and I used to always be a I don't know. It's so hard to believe that. And I like it. I'll see I'm like have a mean streak in them. I love being kind to people. More. I love it's just remnants of it. I love that. Uh, I love the idea of being kind. I think that's so important, especially as a recovery coach. When in doubt about what to do, we often say, do the next right thing. But if you don't even know what the next right thing is, do the next kind thing. I like that. And that can, and that's sometimes a little easier to find. I'm not too good at it, am I? <laughs> well, you teach best what you most need to learn. That's all I can say about that. You are a much kinder human now than you were 20 years ago. Oh, I would say so, no doubt. I hope you change, you know, work in a program of recovery over many years. There was a time Phil gave a sermon in a church many years ago about the Care Bears. Do you ever remember what a Care Bear is? Yeah. All about the Care Bears. <laughs> Kindness, she, care bears. Do you remember that? I do. It was like they had those little lights in their soul. In their tummy. In their chest and their tummy. And the more you fill yourself with spirit, the brighter your light is and the more kind you would be, right? Right. Yeah, so like, and I think they kicked me out of the church. <laughs> you need a more creative spirit to have fill in leadership. Yeah. They quite have the mold. So you talked about uh, being addicted to the lifestyle, mm -hmm. but would you say there was any substance that got hold of you as well, and how did you overcome that? So, so with um, alcohol, absolutely. You know, with alcohol, I was violent. You know, I was violent. I was always getting into fights, and um, you know, being involved in a gang, there was always something going on, some gossip, someone was selling drugs in our territory. And I would drink before, you know, being violent. I would drink before I, we had to, you know, fight other people or, or whatever it may be. And alcohol played a big role. It, it and, and not only being violent, but also when I was home by myself and, and I got in my feelings and I had to suppress some feelings, I, I turned to alcohol and ecstasy pills. When I drank, I never knew which guy was going to come out because mm. I wasn't much of a fighter. I lost all the time, so, and I wasn't much of a lover, but I would be a fighter, a lover. I could cry a lot. I could tell jokes. I, I never knew, but once when I drank, I never knew which guy it was going to be. could never safely predict the outcome of an evening either. I could end up in bed or I could end up in handcuffs. I had no idea. Yep. What? That's interesting. We're going to have to do that on another session. How many times you ended up in the handcuffs? Okay. But back to Juan. The last time I took a substance was 2018 in prison. Yeah. I was I made some alcohol. And, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I used to uh, clean out the sanitizer, hand sanitizer. There's no alcohol in prison, so I had to make my own alcohol. You made it out of hand sanitizer. And how'd that take? We had the decipher the hand sanitizer put by putting salt into the sanitizer and then it kind of cleans it out not completely but you know it kind of extracts all the stuff from from the sanitizer and leaves the alcohol on top it 
Correct. Cut. Yeah. In the, in the, all the filmy stuff gets on top, so you got to filter it with a t-shirt or a sh- we used to use our bed sheet in prison. Yeah. And then um, kind of cut a little square sheet and then just put the sanitizer through and take the alcohol content. And then we mix it with, with juice or something to make it taste better, some type of powdered juice. And then we'll be with the CEOs go by and we're just drinking our juice and getting drunk. Did they care? Or did they? They didn't know. So he and he did it pretty good. There's probably one or two that you do. Well, yeah, so they didn't have gallons of hands. Yeah, they didn't have like gallons. It was just, car. you know, hey, we're going to rack. We'll go see him. You see the uh, maintenance worker, or that, which is which is an inmate, the janitor. Did you get drunk off of that? Absolutely. <laughs> I believe you. Okay. Strong. Oh, yeah, it's real strong, just a little bit. Gonna have to, now you're getting mesmerized by this, too. I'm going to have to hide all the hand sanitizer. Uh, part of it is like fast. I don't want to try making it alcohol out of hand sanitizer. It's, just, it's amazing how creative people can be in circumstances to get what they need. Yeah, my addictive personality made sure, you know, we got we got our, our fix, even incarcerated. Mm-hmm. That wasn't good. <laughs> So you poured the alcohol through, right? You just poured the powder in, or was there water too? Did you just no? Just uh, as soon as you put apply the salt into the hand sanitizer, it automatically is gonna start the. That's what it do, and and then so the alcohol comes out, and you have it in a cup or a glass. Cup filter it into the cup. And then did you put powder in there or did you put pow- water? We put water and powder. And then powder. The juice, Scott. The juice, correct. Correct. Because it would only make, the sanitizer would only make only a certain amount or whatever of alcohol. But then you mix it with the water, it's still pretty strong. All right, okay. All right, I'm done with my <laughs> inquiry. Dang, good. So, so. so, yeah, you're leaving Restaurant Depot <laughs> and you've got a new role. What might that be? <laughs> um, so yeah, one day I start EDRC, which it stands for Emergency De- um, Department Recovery Coach. So I'm so excited. They're going to let a guy like you into the emergency department to coach others? Absolutely. Yeah. Who hired you? Who would ever take our feet on that? All right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's beautiful. You know, one of the things we've heard from other recovery coaches, though, that have been formerly incarcerated, that have been in the gangs, is that you might see some friends in the emergency department, right? Right. Former friends, former gang members. Right. You think about that and how you're going to approach that? Um, I think that's why I waited for the the few years. You know, being a uh, being employed for C-Car has been, always been my dream while I was, or after John Schwartz brought the curriculum. We facil- facilitated the curriculum when he was gone to our, to the peers in, in the um, therapeutic community. And, uh, you know, I was able to facilitate some of the, some of the C-Car curriculum to, to the inmate, to the mentors. So I was a mentor for already. I was a mentor in the, in prison for about 13 months, maybe 14 months. So I already faced the things that I would face out here, mm-hmm. the backlash from the from the former gang friends and, yeah. and things like that. I already faced all of that in prison, which was the most difficult because you see the leaders and, and the most violent. Of, so now when it translated into the community, uh, yeah, I've seen people along my door, my daily shopping, my groceries, but 
you know, I'm a new person today. Yeah. And, um, you know, people ask me for drugs. I used to sell drugs. So they ask me for drugs. And I'm like, and I, I preach my recovery. I say, I say, hey, you want to come to C car? Like I promote recovery to them too. I think everyone deserves a chance at, at, at a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. I'm a new person that you know me as Tito. I'm Tito from back then. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's Tito. That was my nickname growing when I was a kid. And um, I'm a totally different person and everyone already knows there's nothing to hide anymore. Yeah. You know, my social media, I don't promote the same things I used to promote. I don't dress the way I used to dress. I don't speak the way I used to speak. I completely, completely made a 180. And um, I just don't involve myself with anyone anymore if it isn't positive. I literally went through my phone a few months ago, and I told myself that this person is not asking for help. It's not, like, asking for um coaching. Or this person is a negative person. I'm just going to remove you. And I went through my phone removing people that from my past that I want no association with, unless you're asking for help. If you're asking for help, I'm open to help. But if it's not a conversation that's positive or beneficial to put daily deposits into my life, I make da- I put daily deposits into my life every day. Whether it's stop cursing a little less or stop eating that pork shoulder a little less. Like I always try to make every day count as best as possible. Do you think that your former community that you ran with on the streets, do you think they understand recovery? What the word recovery means. That's why I want to attack it. Yeah. I want to go head on with, with that culture, that, that different culture, that, that that urban community culture that that all they praise is violence and drugs and partying. And that's why and that's why I'm so passionate about this new field, this new career. Eventually probably transition onto something else, but I knew I needed to get with C Carter to make change. Because I don't think they understand. What does recovery culture mean to you? Recovery, is it? I think it's just a better way of, for me, it just means a better way of living, doing the next right thing, um, being able to, for me, is being able to provide support for those who need support. Um, like iron sharpening iron, you know. I, you know, I read this curriculum when I was in tier four. It was like, you know, like, the the recovery community is like geese when the geese used to fly in a flock and the flying v and they're traveling and one gets weak it alternates to the back the geese goes to the back if one falls then one would come down and make sure stay with them until it dies and then you know catch up to the flying v afterward well i think that's how the recovery community is for me if one of us starts to slip up because we're human that we have to be communicate. Hey, how are you? Hey, you doing okay? Why you skipped this meeting? Uh, hey, you weren't at church today. Um, you know, it's just about reaching out and and like for me, my power is being kind. You could be mean to me all you want. You could curse at me. I I gotta stay in my character. I gotta stay in my emotions, and I gotta be kind because that's what my higher power wants. And it's not about making people proud anymore for me. It's about what I'm doing behind closed doors to make my higher power proud, proud of me. Well, thank you, Juan. It was a real pleasure getting to know you today. It was my pleasure, and I appreciate the opportunity uh, from CPAR and, and from everyone in my life, and, and I'm just grateful and 
Thank you, Sammy and Phil, for the opportunity to share my story. Yeah. Thank you. Thank God bless you. You will help many. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at ccar, the number four, recovery. And on Instagram at Recovery Matters Podcast.